Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're picking up with part two of our talk about aniconism in the history of art and religion. Uh, aniconism, as we described in the first episode, is the demarcation of divine presence without figural representation. Uh, and that, that was a definition that was given in, uh, in an essay that I talked about in the last episode from the journal Religion in 2017 by the Yale University art historian Millette Gaifman. And so in the last episode, we talked about some issues with defining the concept of aniconism, and we talked about some specific examples from Greek religion and from Hindu religion. And we're back today to uh, keep exploring more on the topic. So, But if you, if you haven't listened to the first episode, you probably really should go back and check that one out first, because that lays a lot of the groundwork for what we're talking about today. Yeah, and I, and I do want to remind everybody that, that, again, this is a topic where it ultimately touches on an array of different cultures different uh, moments in time, different places around the world. And it's not something where you can really just, you know, boil it all down to, you know, a universal law or two concerning like why um, an iconism is utilized and, you know, what its values are, what it's, you know, the pros or the cons, et cetera. It's going to vary from culture to culture. Um, and, and likewise, a lot of our, I guess, bigger questions about it, like what does it do? What is, you know, those two are, are going to be elusive. You know, you're not going to really be able to come up with like one solid answer um, that is going to cover everything. Though in the last episode, we did talk about some specific studies of aniconism that tried to identify some trends that, again, are probably not going to be universal. But for example, uh, one of the papers we looked at last time was by a scholar named Haberman that looked at a sort of spectrum of iconicity in the uh, the religious significance of trees and stones in some Indian rituals. And one of the trends that was extrapolated from that, at least as Haberman argued, was that it seems especially devotional religious practices or religious practices that put a lot of emphasis on the relationship between the person and and the god tend over time often to transform originally aniconic images such as just unadorned rocks and trees as symbols of divine presence into more iconic versions of themselves. So you might end up decorating those rocks and trees with clothing or with masks that have a face on them. Yeah, I particularly like Haberman's ideas regarding what happens when you put a face on a god, you know, and uh, and he brought up like facial recognition and and uh, and and how, you know, that uh, leaning into personification and anthropomorphism uh, regarding these intangible, you know, mythic uh, ideas and about how, you know, you know, ultimately it makes something more, uh, you know, tangible for your, your brain to lock onto. So I wanted to start off today with an example of uh, of an iconic religious representation that is sometimes known in the scholarship as divine emptiness. And this is held up in contrast to material aniconism, where you, uh, you know, where, where you have an object that is the, the marker of divine presence, but it is in itself an object. It might be a large stone or a tree or, uh, you know, a, a big sphere or something like that, or a pillar, but it's not, uh, it's not anthropomorphic. It's not theriomorphic, but it is still a material object. Is it possible to signal divine presence by calling attention to an empty space. At least in some cases, it is. 
And uh, the first example I want to look at here is a monument on the small island known as Halki that is spelled sometimes C-H-A-L-K-E, sometimes H-L-K-I. It's a small island off the coast of Rhodes in the Aegean Sea. And here I'd like to read from that essay by Millet Gaifman that I introduced in the last episode. Quote, In the late 19th century, Friedrich Hiller von Gertringen visited the slopes of the Acropolis of the island, and as he climbed up the hill, he came across a boulder with two rock-cut seats. Upon close inspection, he noticed that each of the two seats was labeled with a divinity's name in the genitive case. The name of Zeus appears on the left, and that of Hecate on the right." And this really got the gears turning in my brain. Uh, it connects to a lot of things, including some things in Christian art that I'll mention in a second here. But um, yeah, the, this is very interesting. So there are some obvious limitations on what information we can we can draw from this, uh, like the lack of archaeological record from the site coupled with the lack of other evidence makes it hard to determine whether this monument was ever the object of rituals or of worship. You know, did people stand before it and bow down? But the fact that the empty stone thrones are labeled with the names of gods seems like at least pretty good evidence that this is a type of an iconic monument if we go with the index of divine presence definition. Because, of course, it, in a way, notes the potential presence of a divine power without showing them in human or in animal form. Uh, and this would be an example of empty space and iconism, because the actual icon you are imagining here is the god sitting within the throne, but they're not there. It's an empty chair. And this is by no means the only example of the empty throne as an index of divine presence. This is actually found all throughout different re religions of the world. Uh, the empty throne of the Buddha in some Buddhist art. Rob, I think you've got some information on that in a minute. But there, there are all kinds of divine furniture, it's sometimes called in, in Greek religion, where this is a thing that the god will sit upon or stand upon, a, a footstool of the god, a throne of the god, but the god isn't in it. And a big example that uh, came to my mind is the prepared empty throne from Christian art, which is often understood to be waiting in preparation for the second coming of Christ. So when Christ comes back, he'll sit here. This imagery seems especially common in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I was uh, looking up some materials on this, and I found a short book published by the J.P. Getty Museum that was by Alfredo Tredigo and translated by Stephen Sartorelli. And it's writing generally about the prepared throne tradition, but with specific attention to one icon in particular that's known as the Hetoimesia, which is also a general term that's applied to a lot of this artwork. I think it means like prepared throne or preparedness, something like that. Uh, but the, this particular icon that is being examined in this book is the back half of a two-sided icon from Athens of the 14th century that's kept in the, uh, the Byzantine Museum. And there are some pretty interesting common features that you find on a lot of these prepared throne artworks from Christian history. So for one thing, Tredigo writes, quote, Few individual icons are devoted to this subject. It is more often inserted into complex compositions, such as the Last Judgment and Sophia, the Wisdom of God. 
The image of the preparation of the throne, or hetoimasia, is usually found on the backs of icons of other subjects, such as the famous icon of the Virgin of Vladimir. The throne being prepared is that on which Christ will sit during the Last Judgment, lying upon the empty throne or the cloak of Christ the Judge and a closed book. In the icon on this page, however, the book is open to a passage in the Gospel, quote, Come, O blessed of my Father, for I was hungry and you gave me food, which is a quote from the Gospel of Matthew. Behind the throne stands a cross. The lance and the cane with the sponge drenched in vinegar lean against it, while the crown of thorns hangs from it. On the forestep of the throne stands a vase with the nails. And so you've got a lot of this, uh, this, this imagery that's charged imagery having to do with the passion narrative in Christianity and other uh, visions of the Last Judgment. But I also find it interesting that this prepared throne of the Last Judgment, this empty chair that Christ will sit in, uh, he he says is often not the center of a religious work of art, but it's maybe somewhere off in the corner or on the back side of an icon. I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but that, that seems interesting to me. It um, you know I was thinking it, it's like okay it's it, this it sounds like it has all the aniconic paraphernalia you know mm -hmm. uh, and in a sense it almost it reminds me a bit of hoarding it's like a hoarding of aniconic symbols and. It, I mean, you think of why do people hold on to objects and things because of their association with 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 times and places and people, you yeah. know? So perhaps a similar energy going on there. And certainly, yeah, if you if you are disinclined to show a a human form or a, a, hu a humanoid form in the art, you have all of these additional things uh, to draw from, places that the individual was, things that interacted with the individual's history or the myths concerning them. Yeah, that's right. And, but it also highlights, of course, you know, one of the things we mentioned in the last episode is that uh, certainly within the history of Christianity, there is not a lot of strict aniconism throughout its history. There's, there's a, a pretty uh, pretty complete blending of iconic and aniconic traditions uh, th throughout the centuries of the Christian mm -hmm. church. But part of this uh, idea is that like, this is a place where Christ is not yet, but will be. This is a yes. time that has not occurred yet, but will occur. Uh, so it, it makes sense that it's unoccupied, that it's unlived in. It's like, you know, it's like, like, the, like the airport and the Langoliers, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So the empty throne here would seem to me to take on a special meaning in the Christian context versus, say, the Greek context, uh, which I'll come back to in just a second, because Christianity has elements of apocalyptic eschatology, which Greek religion usually doesn't. Maybe you could find some elements of it, but it's certainly not as prominent. So in the Christian context, an empty throne prepared for Christ has a special significance, meaning like our Savior isn't here yet, and that's why everything is so bad. Everything is messed up in his absence, but he's coming back soon, and then everything will be made right. So it's actually saying something about the world, not just by pointing to the figure of Christ, but specifically by being currently empty. The current temporary absence of the throne's occupant is in itself theologically meaningful. I was thinking about how the, the television series Game of Thrones uh, leaned in either intentionally or sort of accidentally or just through, you know, cultural um, awareness of the trope into this by, prom by promoting at least one season of the show with just an image of the Iron Throne unoccupied. 
Yes, yes. And and the emptiness of the throne actually says something about the, the mm-hmm. show, like that yeah. it's very up for grabs. It's not just a, a symbol of the kingship, but a symbol of the, the sort of open potential. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you lean into it uh, the right way, the hope that someone will set upon it and set things right. Right. But to come back to the example I started with, the empty thrones of Zeus and Hecate, uh, one thing I, I wanted to mention is that it has been argued that the Christian tradition of empty throne, uh, would you say, I- iconography or an iconography, mm-hmm. uh, is at least to some extent derived from the empty throne imagery in Greek religion before it, which which brings us back to those rock-cut thrones from the island of Halki. Um, so this this monument on the island raises all kinds of interesting questions about how people think of gods when they engage in religious practices. Uh, thinking back to the first episode, if that, that cone of the cult of Aphrodite and Paphos indicates the presence of divine power without showing the goddess having a body, I guess it is in that case, in the case of the cone, left ambiguous whether the worshippers were picturing Aphrodite as having a body at all, like it's not clear what they were thinking about, or whether they thought of her as something more more abstract, more disembodied, and so forth. But the empty thrones of Zeus and Hecate, they are thrones. Thrones are made for bodies to sit on, and they're basically human-sized. So you could argue that these thrones are indications of a figural representation without including the representation. They do ask you to picture Zeus and Hecate as essentially bipedal hominids. They indicate that Zeus and Hecate have butts, and the butts could sit in those thrones, but they don't show them to you. The iconicity is implied, and it happens in your imagination. And I do wonder how, in general, this would this would tend to change the religious experience. Is this somehow is this closer to the experience of the anthropomorphic icon, just a straight up statue of a god, or is it closer to the non figural symbol of divine presence, like the cone of Aphrodite, or is it something uh, something totally different altogether? Yeah, when you start, you know, considering the idea that it's that it's that it's telling you this is a place where the gods have set or will set or can set it raises so many questions about like why i can't see them right now why am i beholding an empty throne now is it is it tied to some legacy of of the uh, like some story about the gods having appeared here or having set here in the past and therefore thrones were built or you know there was a you know you know hallucinations of the gods occurred here and therefore these things were built or is it the idea that sometimes the gods can be reached and therefore this is a place prepared for them this is a place where they can be at home yeah, all really good questions. And and the one I come back to is, I wonder if there is any theological significance to the current emptiness of the thrones, like you could argue there is in the Christian context, you know, that Christ is not on the world right now. So it is pointedly currently empty, but he will be coming. Uh, is the current emptiness of the Zeus and Hecate throne at all like that? Hmm. Yeah, and then of course it also probably draws in questions about like, well, okay, if, if this is a place for the gods, I'm assuming humans are not al- allowed to sit here. Uh, so you know, th- there's some level perhaps of um, of the forbidden there as well. This is a place set aside for the gods. This is not a place for humans. Right, but of course, uh, even though it has been argued that the Christian prepared throne tradition could be derived from the traditions in Greek art of uh, you know uh, furniture for the Greek gods. 
uh, it's clear that this is a motif that appears independently in other religions as well, Like uh, uh, because there are empty thrones in Buddhist artwork. That's right. There's a great deal of uh, aniconism in early Buddhism, so prior to the first century CE. Uh, which you know might seem surprising, you know, to to a lot of people because when you think about Buddhism, uh, certainly when I think about Buddhism, one of the things I think about are those those various images of the Buddha. You know, all these fabulous works of art, um, you, know, you know, paintings and uh, you know inscriptions and sculptures and you know various uh, uh, reproductions of a of a human form. But as Susan L. Uh, Huntington pointed out in Early Buddhist Art in the Theory of an Iconism uh, in Art Journal in 1990. Early images uh, seem to have avoided showing depictions of the historical Buddha or the, the or uh, Buddha uh, Sakyamuni. Uh, this is a Siddhartha Gautama uh, said to have lived fifth uh, to the fourth century BCE. So instead of depicting that individual or some version of that individual in these uh, these early settings, there seemed to have been a, a strong emphasis instead on showing trees and wheels, um, stupas and thrones. And those, of course, can be deeply tied into the story of the Buddha as well. For example, I, I know one of the biggest images in, in Buddhism other than the Buddha himself embodied is, say, the Bodhi tree, which it is said that the Buddha sat underneath. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's definitely connected also to this idea of, of the throne, um, particularly, yeah, the diamond throne or uh, Vajrasana, the, the enlightenment throne of the Buddha. And this is, um, uh, this is an example of an actual empty throne that, uh, that, is, that is still, still around. You can go and see this. It's located at, um, at a Mahabodhi temple at uh, Bodh Gaya in India. So it is a stone slab installed beside the Bodhi tree, and this is said to be where the Buddha attained enlightenment in 500 BCE. Now, the slab itself is thought to have been built by the emperor Asoka around 250 to 233 BCE. And the tree there, the Bodhi tree, is not the original Bodhi tree, but it is said to be an offspring of that tree. Uh, and this, the current tree is estimated to have been planted around 250 BCE, uh, or at least it's been, it's been said to have been planted there. So not the original tree, but it's said to be the offspring. And any way you look at it, potentially a very old tree. Uh, the sacred fig or, um, or ficus religiosa can live uh, an estimated 900 to 1500 years, and some specimens are said to be much older. So even if this is, you know, this is not the original Bodhi tree, if it's, uh, you know, some descendant of the Bodhi tree, it's still like a really old, really impressive tree. Yeah. So you can look up images of this, but the the diamond throne is essentially this stone platform that is then decorated. Uh, Sometimes there is like this this parasol there as well, uh, and various other, um, you know, iconic implements. But there is no individual on the throne. There's no statue of the Buddha on the throne. And basically, you know, I mean, we have to come back again to the idea that this is something from a particular moment in the story of the Buddha, the idea that they have achieved enlightenment, that ultimately the Buddha has, um, you know, has, 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 has moved on into nirvana and, uh, you know, is, is beyond, you know, the, the, the limitations of the, the physical form in this life, etc. And so there's a lot of that in the aniconic aspects of the image. Oh, that almost seems an inverse of the Christian prepared throne, right? Like if, mm-hmm. the, if the empty throne of Jesus is that, well, it's empty now, but he's coming back and he'll sit in it. Uh, the, the empty uh, platform here is almost like, well, he, he was here, but he left. 
Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I guess if I was going to compare it to something in Christianity, I would, I would think about the empty tomb, right? Mm, okay. With the, with the stone rolled aside, you know, the idea of being, he is not in here, he's gone on, he's moved on to other things. A sign of what he transcended. Right. Now, the author of this paper, I should, I should point out, uh, Susan L. Huntington, um, they argue that such aniconic images in Buddhism are, quote, not substitutes or symbols for something else, but are important emblems of Buddhist devotion in their own right. And, and they argue that, that these are not indicative of an, uh, quote, unquote, aniconic period during which there were laws or, you know, pressure against the icons of the Buddha. Uh, this was apparently not the predominant interpretation prior to that 1990 paper. Uh, but I, I, uh, I'm to understand it, you know, like basically, uh, Susan L. Huntington was, was kind of a, um, well, dare I say an iconoclast in, uh, in bringing around this, this new understanding. And certainly I think there've been, there've been various, um, you know, findings that back this up as well. Like, it's not like there were no images of the Buddha prior to this. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, certainly a trend in depicting, um, the you know the the story of Buddha and uh, and and you know various aspects of of uh, of Buddhist belief, uh, but uh, uh, but again a lot I think it seems to be tied more to that story of the Buddha again like this is a this is a this is an actual place in the history of the Buddha this is a time in the history of Buddha and this is what happened. So it's not empty as a result of a prohibition on depiction of the Buddha, but it's empty as a result of a deliberate choice stemming from the story that it's based on. I guess it's kind of like if you go to a museum, uh, say it's a historic house or something, they may have, hey, here's the writing desk uh, desk of this individual. Now, sometimes they might have a wax uh, version of that, say, you know, like founding father or whatever sitting at the desk. But plenty of times you are not going to encounter that. It's just going to be here's the desk where they sat. Imagine what that was like, if you will. So I don't think it's a particularly, you know, like lofty theological concept for us to wrap our heads around, because I think anybody who's gone to a museum or a historic location has encountered something of this nature. It just, you know, is is inevitably not as as sacred uh, a story and sacred a figure. So in looking at these examples in particular, a question that really interests me is, is there any difference on average for the mental experience of a religious adherent uh, of a cult with a figural icon, like a statue of Zeus or something, versus an empty space icon, like these examples of sacred furniture, you know, the diamond throne or the empty throne of Zeus and Hecate? I was trying to see if I could find any possibly applicable scientific research here. I did find something that that might tell us something interesting, though I want to be careful not to overinterpret. But we'll we'll see if this seems at all relevant. Uh, So I did find a study from the Journal of Cognitive Psychology in 2011 by William L. Thompson, Yaling Xiao, and Stephen M. Kosselin called Dissociation Between Visual Attention and Visual Mental Imagery. And this study addressed the question, what is the difference in the brain between focused visual attention and mental imagery? In other words, what is the actual difference between seeing and imagining? And in a way, this paper is responding to some some theorists who had said they're actually in, in many ways the same thing. And we've known for a long time that there is clearly some overlap between visual perception and mental imagery. Uh, for example, there are experiments that show that they make use of some of the same parts of the brain and compete for some of the same resources so that one can potentially be mistaken for the other and they can sometimes interfere with one another. 
But despite this overlap, there are also indications that visual perception and visual imagination are are not exactly the same thing. There are some differences in how they usually function. And the authors here are responding to theories that mental imagery might be nothing more than a specific form of actual visual perception, of visual attention specifically. And so the article tried to demonstrate that difference and explore one of the ways that these two processes are different. So uh, in reading their, them describing their experimental process, they say, quote, In this study, we used a size manipulation to demonstrate that imagery and attention are distinct processes. We reasoned that if participants are asked to perform each function, both imagery and attention, using stimuli of two different sizes, large and small, and that stimulus size affects two functions differently, then we could conclude that imagery and attention are distinct cognitive processes. Our analyses showed that participants performed the imagery task with greater facility at large size, whereas attention was performed more easily using smaller stimuli. This finding demonstrates that imagery and attention are distinct cognitive processes. So uh, the task involved them like trying to notice the appearance of small dots within differently sized spaces and then uh, contrast the, the contrasting uh, test groups there were sometimes those spaces were occupied by a shape where they were applying visual attention and other times those spaces were occupied by something on which they were asked to project mental imagery hmm. and what they found was that the people were better at the attention task meaning actually looking visual perception when they were dealing with a smaller space a smaller square and they were better at the uh the imagery task the the imagination task when they were dealing with a larger square uh, so I'm not sure this tells us anything about empty space aniconism versus direct iconic representation, but it, it might. I mean, I, I wonder if this this has something to do with like feelings of a sort of spatial expansiveness in in how you uh, manipulate I- imagined imagery versus how you would actually respond to a physical statue that's right in front of you and you're looking at it, focusing your actual visual attention on it when you're concentrating on the divine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think these these findings are really interesting. But yeah, you, I feel like you could kind of cherry pick them and apply them all over the place to some of these examples we've looked at. You know, because yeah. I'm I'm tempted, for example, to for you know to come back to what Eckhart Tolle said about you know find this small piece of nature and focus on it. You know, focus your attention on this bird or um, you know or this uh, this this crystal or whatever. Um, you know, I'm thinking about the you know the the idea of using the the Krishna stone and focusing on that as opposed to the mountain. That is also Krishna, uh, uh, out of which the the stone was was harvested. You know, mm-hmm. um, like you know, both. I can see sort of see the value of both. You know, in, in sort of the largeness of a god uh, or a goddess, or the the relatability of a god or a goddess. The 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 you know, at, at what points is it more advantageous or desired to feel a sense of of like personal connection and concentration regarding uh, a divine figure. And other times is it better, you know, to have that sort of awe moment, like just thinking about Buddha imagery, you know, uh, is it bad? You know, if it's one, you have the Buddhas of all size, right? You have Buddhas that are tiny little uh, statues that you carry in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Buddhas that uh, are, are human size. You have Buddhas that are carved out of mountains and are like Titanic and awe-inspiring works to look at. Well, I, I think about the ways that different uh, sizes of the same icon 
are, are I think, supposed to target people, different emotions in, in believers. For example, uh, the, the tiny crucifix that somebody wears around their neck versus the Christ the Redeemer statue in Brazil, which is gigantic. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they, they, those are supposed to create different feelings. One is a feeling of awe, you know, that, that you are small and that God is big and, uh, and that you can kind of surrender yourself to this gigantic, awesome power with the, you know, with the big statue. Versus the the crucifix that you wear around your neck, I often take as a sign of intimacy, like closeness with God, uh, what Mm. sometimes Christians would call the personal relationship, though that's probably not a term that that, uh, everybody who wears a crucifix would use. Yeah, this is all interesting. This this will be something we'll we'll have to hear from listeners about as well. But but on the the subject of of mental images and visual images, um, I, I started thinking about this question of, uh, of of you know again what what's the difference? What how do you compare the two? And in looking into this, I, I ran across an interesting article by David Van Drunen, and it's titled uh, "Pictures of Jesus and the uh, Sovereignty of Divine Revelation," published in the Confessional Presbyterian in 2019. So this is like a theological journal where like they're. It's for for people within the church uh, discussing church matters. Yeah, but I found it pretty relatable, though, in, in what they're talking about here, because they're not really like diving deep into theology here. They're just they're ultimately uh, they're ultimately asking like what's what's the difference between these two and observing like sort of the push and pull of an iconism and iconism um, and uh, within this tradition. All right. Pointing out, uh, quote, many traditional reform discussions of the second commandment, uh, again, referring to the the Ten Commandments, the idea of, you know, graven images and all, um, have clearly taught that it prohibits forming mental images of God as well as representing him artistically, uh, which I found uh, really fascinating because so much of what we've been discussing so far is, you know, especially when we were talking about the Krishna example earlier, the idea that if you have a very aniconistic uh, medium with which to um, engage with, you know, this this stone that does not look like a person, then you can kind of summon whatever uh, anthropomorphized incarnation of Krishna you want, you know. Uh, mm. And so basically – I, you know, I ended up just sort of taking the mental image portion of that for granted. Like, of course, you're going to then imagine uh, Krishna in whichever form relates to your, your your current circumstances, or you know, or you know what what you are looking for most out of your religious life. Likewise, we were talking about uh, about God, uh, uh, images of God. When we're just asked, you know, gut reaction, what does God look like? And you end up picturing the the sky god from the Sistine Chapel or from Monty Python or whatever. Yeah, and I alluded to this in the last episode, but there there's actually tons of uh, debate among Jewish scholars about how best to interpret the second commandment. You know, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. What exactly does that mean? What are the limits mm-hmm. of that? Uh, I mean, I think it's clear from the historical context that one big thing was that uh, many of the other tribes of ancient Canaan – uh, they had religious practices that would be centered around a, a central cult icon. So they would have mm-hmm. a, 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 an, uh, an idol that would be a statue of some kind, and their worship in some way was was around that or directed toward it. And so the banning of idols was in uh, in one sense, I think you could interpret that as just a way of saying, hey, we're not like any of these other religions around us. They've all got idols, but we don't. Uh, but the, that's kind of interesting because one way that the ban on graven images has been interpreted is not just like don't make idols of other gods and worship them, but also don't make idols of me, the God who is speaking this commandment to you. I do, I do not want to be represented in, a, in an animal form, say, as a golden calf. 
Yeah. So, I was, but I was kind of surprised when we reached the level where where some people take it to the next phase and say, "Do not form a mental image of the God in question." Right. Don't um, even do it in your head. Yeah. Which uh, you know, and, and we'll get into the like the major, I guess, arguments against that. But it it makes me think again of the this the idea of the Monty Python God, where if there's nothing else to draw on, I'm going to draw on that that one image. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, b- basically, you reach the point in the argument where you have to deal with the in- inevitability of mental images. It's just hard to ignore um, uh, that this is one of the, the points that Van Dronen makes in this is like it- it's just something that happens automatically. It's that that gut instinct imagining of the Monty Python God again. Uh, and so critics of this have argued that if mental images are inevitable, well, then that means visual images are perhaps permissible as well. Like people are, which I think that, that I can understand that argument. It's like people are going to imagine what Christ looks like. And if we don't give them some guidance, then, then, you know, they're going to cling to something or another, you know, mm-hmm. which I, I feel like is, is kind of the case with these images of uh, the Judeo-Christian God, where it's like, you didn't give me anything to, to picture. So I'm only going to picture the Sistine Chapel. I'm only going to picture a Stephen Colbert skit or, uh, or the Monty Python depiction of the Almighty. But then Van Drunen points out that, that it has gone in the opposite direction as well. People saying, well, if visual images are not allowed, then we cannot have mental images either. Why on earth would we allow, would we, would you say, would we say no visual images if we're going to still let people have mental images? Though, again, how do you enforce that? Well, this kind of reminds me of some of the teachings of of Christ about how to obey the Torah, and I think this was uh, something that was taught by other rabbis as well, that you have heard, thou shalt not commit murder, but in fact, if you're angry with someone, you've committed murder in your heart. So it's like, not only don't do it physically, don't even go there mentally. Uh, which I think you could you could look at that multiple ways, but one way to look at it is that's a, a sort of like extra safety valve, right? It's like if you can't even go that far, then you're not even going to get close to committing a physical murder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely see the the connective tissue between those two concepts. Yeah, um, which I, I mean, ultimately, I guess this is something that you get at in in any of these religious uh, traditions. It's like there's. There's the external world of symbols and imagery and literature and, and, and so forth. But then there is there's inevitably the inner experience as well. And, um, you know, the two are connected, but there are also these these walls between them. And, a, and, and at various points in, in history, people have really gotten caught up on that that inner world, like how to uh, I mean, ultimately, that's where we all are. Like, that's where that's where all the main battles are taking place, right? That's where you're yeah. trying to, uh, to enter some sort of meditative state. That's where you're trying to obtain peace. So I think it's interesting to note that there have been strong trends, not just of aniconism, but sometimes of pronounced actual anti-iconism in all three of the major Abrahamic religions. And remember, in the first episode, we made the distinction there, just because a religion is largely aniconic, say they, they don't use figural representations of the divine presence, doesn't mean they're necessarily anti-iconic. It wouldn't necessarily imply that they think Figural representations are bad, though sometimes in some religions the, the figural representations are prohibited or are preached against. Yeah, and in this we we really get into the the subject of of iconoclasm and iconoclasts, which we 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 touched on already, I believe. But uh, you know, all of this is very much tied to the discussion of an iconism. Now, 
a lot of you've probably heard various artists and thinkers referred to broadly as iconoclasts. Uh, I say, unfortunately, like that's the thing that comes to my mind first, instead of like examples from Byzantine history, it's more, uh, you know, various Rolling Stone um, headlines. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I did a search for iconoclast on Rolling Stone's website. Okay. Here are just a few of the people that come up uh, being described as iconoclasts or being mentioned in articles where the word iconoclast is used. Oh, boy. So Anthony Bourdain, Noel Gallagher, uh, Justin Thoreau, golfer David uh, Ferret. I believe that's Ferret. Sure. I don't know this golfer. Um, don't either. Lady Gaga, Tom Petty, <laughs> Chance the Rapper, Frank Zappa, Amy Winehouse, Iggy Pop, Bjork, George Romero, Slipknot. Slipknot, uh, yes. Slipknot, Nablus, yes. <laughs> So just just to name a few. Now, I, I should say, like, this is all perfectly fair because iconoclast has come to mean anyone who attacks or breaks down cherished beliefs or institutions. You know, someone who says you might think rock and roll is this, but it's actually this. It's often synonymous with rebel or contrarian, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And it's it, it's, I, you know, there's sometimes I think where it's an overstatement of an artist's contribution. But I don't know. It's ultimately all fair uh, in the in the, the game of like rock and roll PR. Right. Mm-hmm. But more specifically, an iconoclast is a supporter of the eighth and ninth century movements in the Byzantine church who sought to abolish the veneration of icons and other religious imagery. But we see iconoclasms in plenty of other religions as well. And I think this might be, you know, the better way to think about uh, an iconism uh, in a way, you know, outburst movements and crisis points in uh, an iconism that leave lasting effects on the culture. Um, We can see examples of this, of iconoclasm in ancient Egypt, for instance. Oh, okay. So with like the the Akhenaten movement, the the push towards something like a monotheism way in, in ancient Egypt. Yeah, with the the sun disk and and yeah, Ottonism and so forth. Yeah, um, you know the shift to that, and then the subsequent return to um, uh, to the familiar Egyptian pantheon. Uh, both shifts involved iconoclasm. Now, and as far as Islam is concerned, uh, first let's just provide a, a brief overview of the importance of an iconism in Islam, as outlined in in the the Hadith, a collection of traditions containing sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. So my main source on this is a really excellent paper, Between Cult and Culture, uh, Bamiyan, Islamic Iconoclasm, and the Museum by Finbar Barry Flood of NYU, an expert in Islamic art, and it was published in the Art Bulletin in 2002. Hmm. So Flood points out that the two main arguments uh, against figuration in the uh, prescriptive texts uh, are that we should not usurp divine creative power and that we should avoid polytheism and idolatry. And in both of these flood rites, there's a strong concern with the materialistic worship found in non-Islamic traditions uh, at the time. He also points out that this was, this was also a common move among both Christians and Jews as well in considering the religion of others. Like, look to what other faiths are doing and interpret it as polytheism. Ah, uh, yes. This reminds me of things I remember encountering in, in my childhood in Tennessee, where conservative Protestants would accuse Catholics of being polytheists. Right. Yeah, I think that that's very much an example of this sort of thing. Now, the general consensus in the Hadith flood rites is that one should not depict anything that has a shadow. Uh, thus, we see this rich artistic history that depends instead on abstraction, geometry, and script. Uh, coinage, for example, that depends on script, not figures. 
But uh, here's the really important take-home from Flood. While Western commentators often fall into this trap, you can't look to moments of iconoclasm by particular sects or actors, uh, such as the destruction of the the Buddhas at Bamiyan by the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan, as evidence of a fixed, sweeping, and uh, essential example of broad Islamic culture. Instead, we're looking at a great deal of variation, complexity, and sophistication in the Muslim response to images which entail varying attitudes over time and space. And he points out that, you know, there's a lot to gain from looking at iconoclastic moments in Islamic history, but you can't classify them all under a single rubric for iconoclasm, no more than you can do it for Christian iconoclasm by looking at these moments. Because you do see, uh, you know, the the issues shift around a bit in Islamic history. So Flood points out that um, um, the the, the Umayyad Caliphate established an enduring precedent for an-iconic coins in 697. But, quote, even after this date, however, variations in attitudes to figuration existed uh, for some later Islamic rulers issued coins bearing figural imagery. Uh, He also points out that you find Islamic palaces that were lavishly decorated with sculpture and paintings that had anthropomorphic elements uh, that were in stark contrast to religious architecture of the same period. So especially during the 7th century, you would find this divide between the way secular and religious buildings were designed and decorated. Oh, okay. So there could also be a distinction there between religious art and, and secular art within Islamic cultures. Right. And for instance, just in the secular arts, he mentions that anthropomorphic and zoomorphic images proliferated uh, in in that realm. Again, the secular world outside of the religious sphere. And that ultimately, um, attitudes, quote, carried from individual to individual and could change over time or with the advent of new political regimes with different cultural values. And uh, that's one of those statements that I think it, it, it may seem like an overstatement of the obvious, but uh, oftentimes outside of the Islamic world, it, it's it's easy to just like look at it as a monolith and not not, uh, you know, acknowledge that that reality. Now, this uh, this gets interesting as well. There were sometimes workarounds such as the recontextualization uh, of a particular text or work or decapitation. Uh, an item or work, be it uh, 2D or 3D, no distinction was apparently made, it might remain un, you know, untarnished, unaltered, undestroyed if context showed that it wasn't being venerated or if you removed the head or the face from the work, thus making it inanimate and uh, devoid of a soul, Flood writes. Hmm. And, uh, and this is interesting because you know, I think outside observers, they might tend to just you know, immediately think of like, okay, the decapitation or the defacement uh, is like a severe example of iconoclasm. But as Flood points out, they're actually, quote, a type of instrumental iconoclasm as it permitted the rest of the work to survive in an altered form. It's ultimately a creative strategy. So if you have a, say, you have an illuminated text, uh, you know, with illustrations and the text is, is of its value, it's valuable knowledge, do you destroy the whole text or do you, you know, you rip out the pages that have illustrations or do you just deface uh, the images? And therefore, the, you know, the majority of the text remains, uh, but it has been brought, uh, you know, into, um, into the realm where it's going to be accepted by those that would be uh, critical of its use of imagery. 
So you, you, you get into the, you know, these various scenarios when you get outside, you know, increasingly outside of the religious world and you get more into the secular world. But avoidance of divine images in Islam, uh, flood rights, was pretty much universal. And I've got, I've got one more quote I want to read uh, from flood here. Quote, there is no evidence to suggest that the divine image was represented in the Islamic world, despite occasional tendencies towards anthropomorphism. But in the Eastern Islamic world, depictions of the prophet Muhammad survive from the 13th century on. In later paintings, the prophet is sometimes, but not always, portrayed with his face veiled or otherwise obscured. This reticence about the face finds a counterpart in the activities of medieval iconoclasts in the Islamic world. Okay, so that would go along with the the depictions of secular artwork that we were talking about. That say, if you um, the artist might think that if you obscure the face of the prophet, you're not inviting anyone to view him as divine. Yes, but but I, I, again, I think it's important to drive home that in, in this example, and really all the examples we've been discussing here, is that it's more a story of different um, movements of an iconism, uh, um, you know, outbursts of an, of an iconism, and uh, and the, the ebb and flow across you know the centuries or longer. You know, I've been having a thought as we've been looking at a lot of these examples about a general trend of a a common back and forth. I wonder to what extent this is true that I also want to be careful not to just like gut feel my way into, you know, overgeneralizations. But I kind of wonder Mm -hmm. if there is often in religion a general trend toward more iconic artistic representations of religious uh, subjects as there is increased emphasis on familiarity and relationship in in the religious practice, you know, the familiarity between the God and the worshiper. And then there's a backlash that goes against iconism when there's sort of a, a, a return to purity movement that emphasizes something less individual, less relational, and more uh, more abstract. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I can see where that could certainly be a part of it. I mean, there's also a, a frequent trend is like, what do you make these these images out of? You know, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're making them, you know, they're, they're fine works of art. They're, they're material possessions. So I feel like there's the material uh, and, the, uh, and the rebellion against the material world that, uh, that takes place in all of this as well, again, across various cultures. Now, almost everything we've talked about so far has been in the context of religion, but of course, some of these same ideas about uh, iconic representation versus aniconism could be applied outside the context of religion. Yeah, I was thinking, for instance, about the Muppet Babies. Um, do you remember? <laughs> do you ever watch the Muppet Babies, Joe? Oh yeah, I did. I remember. Yeah. Well, remember we never saw the the nanny's face, right? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, we did see legs. Does that count? I guess that's part of the spectrum, right? We talked right. about the spectrum in the last episode. That the just seeing the legs and the sneakers and the and the striped socks does seem less figural than showing the whole body. Yeah, she she is kind of the goddess of the Muppet Babies, mm-hmm. and we we never see her face. What does it mean? Is is she is she like a god? Can we not imagine what her face is? Can they not see her face because they have? Uh, you know, their their vision's not good enough. You know, because she's pretty tall. <laughs> but th- but this also made me think of various franchises where there are particular types of franchises, like the Star Wars sort of franchise, where it's it's been created, it's been you know embellished and built upon, and then you end up with a certain set of guidelines, usually internal guidelines for what can and cannot be done 
within this fictional universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the main example that comes to mind is the is it's like the long-standing mandate that you're not supposed to give a name to the species of Yoda. You know that Yoda Yoda's Yoda, and you just can't talk about like what he is or where he comes from. And a large part of that is like you want some sort of mystery in your expansive world. If you don't have mysterious gaps in it, it will all feel too small. Uh, I am. I just feel sure that somebody has broken that rule at some point. There's got to be like an expanded universe novel that said what species Yoda was. They went to the Yoda planet. Am I wrong? I don't know. I, I, oh, okay. I, I mean, it's possible. I would, I would like to hear more about it if that's the case. But I, I feel like it was, it was pretty strongly enforced or at least honored by people who were playing in the Lucas sandbox. But, uh, but, it, but it made me wonder, okay, well, what about, you know, what else is, is, is there, say, within the Star Wars world? I mean, well, I guess there's, obviously, there's the, uh, the Clone Wars. Uh, when, uh, you know, after the first trilogy came out, Lucas knew that he wanted to do something with the Clone Wars eventually. So there was a prohibition against uh, prequel matters because he knew he wanted to do his own prequel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but I, it made me think about... Um, Visual depictions like it, and, and again, this would largely be a matter of like internal, um, uh, uh, you know, mandates and, uh, you know, internal um, uh, statements about what can and cannot be de- depicted. But I wonder if there are any, uh, you know, large-ish fictional universes where there is some sort of prohibition against visualizing certain characters or entities. Hmm. The only example, possible example that came to mind, I was thinking about this, and again, I have no access to internal documents, so this is all just me guessing. <laughs> but I know in the okay. uh, the, the Warhammer Forty Thousand universe, I don't think you ever see depictions of the the, the chaos gods that are you know on the you know the, that are um, you know trying to bring about the, the the ruination of the galaxy. And I wonder how much of that is there being a mandate that says, hey, you shouldn't actually illustrate what these things look like. Or is it just simply a matter of like professional artists working within that realm and being inspired by, by you know, a, you know, a legacy of artists working in the weird and the dark? If they just instinctively know that okay, if you have some sort of dark elder god, if you actually draw it, you will diminish it in some fashion, and it needs to be this sort of big, scary concept as opposed to something that fits on a single page. I've got one. What's that? Never see Doctor Claw, do you? Or you never see his oh, face? Oh, that's right. It's just it, the glove. Not in the, uh, the the actual series. I mean, I'm sure they broke this rule in the the, the live action films. But yeah, in the old cartoon, he was uh, he was yeah. You never saw his face; just that clawed hand, and you saw his cat, right? Right. Though uh, apparently, at some point, there was an action figure because ultimately, the purpose of every cartoon is to sell toys, uh. and so you got to have action figures. And what would have been great is if the action figure had just been an optical illusion. It's like a chair with an arm from no matter what angle you look at it. I would have given them credit on that. But no, there is an action figure that's just he's plastic. He's just got gray hair and he looks angry and he's wearing oh, a black goodness. jacket. Can you look this up and find it? Uh, I will look it up. But while I'm looking it up, I think you've really touched upon you've basically answered the question. Like all these things I've mentioned, Star Wars, Warhammer, even Muppet Babies, I guess, you know, these are all about creating icons, mass producing icons and selling them uh, to children, you know. So if there is an iconism within Star Wars, that's to its detriment because that's one less thing that you can make into a figure and then sell to somebody. But I got to have you look it up, Rob. Put this put this stuff in your head. Oh, now the first thing that comes up is is the the toy, but its face is obscured. So, uh, I mean, as part of the packaging, like the original packaging, you would have to buy him to see what his face looked like. 
Oh, that's a good gimmick, but uh, yeah, I still I've got don't to find like another it. image. Okay, here it is. Now I see it. Uh, yeah, that's not Doctor Claw. That doesn't. That's not him. Why does he have such big teeth? Yeah, he, he he has like he's gritting his teeth and his mouth is open, like his lips are open very wide, but his teeth are clenched together. Mm. Yeah, that's that's he's not got, my Doctor Claw. What does his hair look like? What who who else has that three spiked hair? Is that like Goku hair? <laughs> uh, I'm I'm looking at kind of a thumbnail of it, but I get strong. I get strong uh, David Lynch and David Cronenberg vibes, you know, that like kind of <laughs> kind of white, uh, impressive hair that kind of uh-huh. sticks up. But still, he looks angrier than either of those uh, two individuals. So I, I don't really don't know what to make of this this Doctor Claw here. Also, huge belt, a gigantic belt buckle that's as big as his face. Oh, well, not quite as big, but it's it's a, that's a big buckle. Hmm. Did we ever see what Cobra Commander looked like on the old GI Joe cartoons? Seems like that might have been been another area where. You, you were not permitted to see like what was under the mask. You just had to imagine it. Oh, well, this actually does. Con- this connects to an area that I know, you know, well, uh, I wonder if masked characters and the, the desire to keep the mask on, obviously they're still anthropomorphic because they're in their bodies. I mean, they're pretty much fully embodied, but the hiding of the face does in a way seem maybe lightly analogous to a type of light aniconism. You know, mm. it's obscuring one of the most important parts of the human figure. Yeah, so if you can ever see Cobra Commander's face, like you can never, um, like see him as a full human. You know, like he's always going to retain a certain mystique and uh, and inhumanity. Yeah. So anyway, that that's all I have. Not not really much in the way of answers on that on all of that, but just sort of questions. Um, and then I guess that kind of that's kind of the the truth on on pretty much every example of an iconism that we've discussed here is like it ultimately raises more questions than we have real answers to and just kind of makes you think and and ponder like our relationship with images. Yeah. This is one where uh, uh, I've really enjoyed this pair of episodes. We got into a lot of interesting history and and religious art and stuff, but I I do feel like I've kind of failed. I failed to find like a good, a good way to frame this in a psychological or neuroscientific theory. Um, So I don't know, maybe, maybe listeners could help us out with that. What what does this bring to mind for you in, in those worlds? Yeah, we're a bit like Brother William at the end of The Name of the Rose, where we, we feel like that, um, you know, the, the, these ladders that we've built uh, and used and inherited have failed us in arriving <laughs> at the truth. We have when the, the library is burned um, and we just have to walk away from it. Well, let's not uh, die wedged in that secret passageway. No, no. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So once again, we'd love to hear from everybody out there. Your thoughts on, uh, you know, especially you know, any kind of... Uh, Uh, an iconism that you have grown up in or, you know, have um, a cultural connection to. Uh, I'd love to hear from you on that. Certainly uh, anything in the art world is fair game. Uh, Write in. Let us know. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. We just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Thank you.